Turn in your Bibles to Exodus this morning. It's been a while since we have been in Exodus, but we're returning there this morning. We are going back just a little bit, picking up some things from, from chapter 12, which is where we left off. And then we're, we're also jumping ahead through verse, uh, chapters 13 and 14. We won't be reading everything and talking about everything in these three chapters this morning, but we'll be hopefully hitting some of the highlights. And we're going to begin, actually, by reading Exodus 14, verses 26 through 31. So the very end of our passage is what we're going to start off by reading. Exodus 14, verses 26 through 31. Here's what it says. The Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots, and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen. Of all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea, not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus, the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, and so the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. This is the word of the Lord. Let's, let's pray. Father, this, this your word you've given to us to feed us, to strengthen us and sustain us. And I pray that you would do that, do that in us today. I pray that you would minister to our hearts the truth that we just sang, that those whom you save are your delight. You hold us close to your heart. You hold us fast. Use your word today to minister, to, to convince us, to persuade us of this truth so that we leave today feeling the glory of it. In Jesus' name, amen. 26%, sorry, I'm trying to read a statistic here and realizing I'm reading it wrong. Uh, according to a March 2015 study published in the Sage Journal, loneliness, social isolation, leads to a 26% increased risk of death. It's kind of a stunning thing, isn't it? One, one uh, illustration compared that to smoking 13 cigarettes a day. One third of Americans suffer from social isolation, from loneliness. Loneliness, being alone. It's not just something that makes us feel sad. It's something that's dangerous, isn't it? It's dangerous for us. We were not made to be alone. And yet think of how prevalent that, that feeling, that experience is. Think of the poems and the songs <laughs> that have been written about that. I, was, I, was, uh, I realize this is going to pigeonhole me right into a particular age in the history of music, but I was thinking of a Green Day song this week as I was thinking about loneliness. I walk a lonely road. Remember that one? I walk a lonely road, the only one that I've ever known. Uh, but that's only one of, of thousands of songs that have been written about being alone, being isolated, feeling like, like you're all by yourself. 
And we think back to the original creation and how God created the first man and showed him that he was alone before bringing him his wife. Right? And yet even there, if that's where we stop, we miss the point. Because the point is not that, that we were made uh, to find our final sense of community with one another. Not finally. We are made, don't misunderstand me, we are made to find community with one another, with our spouses, with our friends, in our church body, in our community. We were made for that. But finally, the, the, the ultimate community we were meant to find, the ultimate fellowship we were made for, is not with one another, but with God. Even, even the isolation, the loneliness that Adam felt in the garden, and the, the provision for that loneliness in the creation of Eve was meant to point forward, I think, was meant to point forward and upward to the ultimate community, the, the fellowship that we were each made to find with God. And only in our relationship with God are we then able to find true community with one another. But that's what we're, we're thinking about this morning. We're thinking about loneliness and the danger of loneliness, and we're realizing that, that being redeemed means never traveling alone anymore. Being redeemed by God means never being alone, never traveling alone anymore because God is traveling with us. Being redeemed means never traveling alone anymore. And so as we look through these three chapters of Exodus this morning, we're going to be seeing first that God puts himself in front of his people. Second, that God puts himself in back of his people. And then finally, we'll see that God puts himself in the place of his people. That may sound a little bit to you like, um, what is it, St. Patrick's breastplate? You're familiar with that prayer? Christ before me, Christ behind me, Christ above me, Christ beneath me. You ever heard that? It's kind of what we're doing here this morning. We're seeing that God puts himself in front of us and behind us, and ultimately he puts himself in place of us. Being redeemed by God means never traveling alone anymore. So first of all, let's see how God puts himself in front of his people. Look at Exodus chapter 13 this morning. Exodus 13, and look at just the first couple of verses. As we consider the fact that God puts himself in front of his people, we're considering his leadership of his people, the way he leads his people on the wilderness journey in the exodus from Egypt. And we're going to see three characteristics of his leading of his people under this heading of God putting himself in front of his people. We're going to see that God leads them gently. We're going to see that God leads them faithfully. And we're going to see that God leads them constantly. See how he leads them gently in Exodus 13, verses 17 and 18. When Pharaoh let the people go, it says, God did not lead them by way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. And the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt equipped for battle. God leads his people gently. Now, you might have maps in the back of your Bible, and they might have a map of the Exodus there, but you might be a little bit confused about what it actually means here when it says that God, when he, when he led the people up out of Egypt, chose not to lead them uh, through the land of the Philistines, but instead chose to lead them by the way of the wilderness. And so we've actually put a map up here on the screen for you to understand what's going on. You see Egypt there in the upper left-hand corner in the land of Goshen, which is where the Israelites would have lived. And you see the Red Sea, and you see Canaan, way up there uh, to the northeast. The way of the Philistines is the way along the coastline. 
And the reason that's called the way of the Philistines is because the Philistines, as they, uh, as they uh, lived in the land of Israel, they inhabited five cities along the coast of Israel. In fact, they inhabited those cities all through Israel's history. But they, they didn't originate in the five cities that are mentioned in later scriptures as the cities of the Philistines. The Philistines were actually a seafaring people. Most historians think they were Greek in origin, and they were basically pirates. They, they traveled along the coast in ships and raided the coastline. And so when we read here that God chose not to lead the Israelites by the way of the Philistines, what it means is he chose not to lead them along the coast up into the land of Canaan, although that would have been the quickest route, the most direct route, and he chose not to do that because it would have left them open to the raids of those seafaring Philistines. And it certainly, once they got to the land of Canaan, would have led them squarely into the regions that were occupied by the Philistines. God chose not to lead them that way, so they wouldn't immediately have to do battle. He leads them gently. Instead, we read that he led them by the way of the wilderness. This is a longer route. You see, it's, it's a more circuitous route. They're going to go down into the Sinai Peninsula. And one of the reasons for that, of course, is that we think Sinai itself is probably located down near the tip of that second arrow on the map that you're looking at either there, maybe on the other side of that tributary of the Red Sea. We're not exactly sure where Mount Sinai was located, but it was down there somewhere in the, the, the Sinai Peninsula or the Sinai area. And God had specifically said he would bring Israel out to worship him at that mountain. And so that's one of the reasons they're going in that direction. But here we're told that here's another reason they're going to go that route. It's going to keep them safe from battle. God leads his people gently. He does what is best for them. Now, if you look at that map, you'll see that that route, the way of the wilderness, the route that God chooses to take his people, is, uh, is a much long, it's going to be a much longer route to Canaan, isn't it? It's going to take them a lot longer to get there. Of course, we know it's actually going to take them 40 years to get there uh, for other reasons. But even aside from their rebellion and judgment of being in the wilderness 40 years, it still would have been a much longer route. Not to mention the fact that in the middle of it, they're going to have to cross the Red Sea, which we're going to talk about in just a few minutes. But the purpose that, of, of pointing this out to you is that this route is not easier. It's certainly not shorter. It's actually much longer. And in some ways, it's going to be harder. But what God says is it's better. God has determined that it's better. Sometimes we don't understand the reason for the road that God chooses for us. But we can rest assured that what he chooses is the best. It's for our good. He is a kind and gentle father. That's one of those things that we can say. You know, it can come out of our mouths. We can, we can write it down. We can say it to each other. But how often do we really believe it? Do we believe that God is a gentle father and that his ways are best and that the route that he chooses for us is good, is better? Not easy, not short, but better. So I don't know where you are in your journey with God, to coin a phrase. I don't know if you're um, in the midst of hardship or if you feel like maybe God has led you on a road that seems unnecessarily long or unnecessarily hard. But this speaks to you where you are. This says to you that just as God led the Israelites on a better way and that he had his reasons for doing that, so wherever you are on your road, God has a reason for you being on that road and not another. He's sovereign. Trust him. He leads his people gently. Not only does he lead them gently, he leads them faithfully. 
Continuing on in Exodus chapter 13, we read this in verse 19. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. They take the bones of Joseph. Why? Why would they do that? Why would they take the bones of Joseph along with them? Well, simply because God had promised that to Joseph. God had promised to Joseph that he would do for his people what we see him doing in these chapters. God had promised to Joseph that his family would not stay in Egypt, and Joseph believed him. In fact, if you were to go back into, uh, into the book of Genesis, verses, uh, chapter 50, verses 20 through, 22 through 26, the last verses of the book of Genesis, you see Joseph calling in his, his brothers and his, his uh, brother's children and saying to them, promise me that you will take my bones with you because God will come, God will visit you, God will take you up out of this place. Joseph believed what God said. And here we see God's faithfulness to his promise. God leads his people faithfully. God is fulfilling his promise to Joseph's family. You say, well, fat lot of good it does for Joseph. Joseph's dead. Is he, though? I mean, yeah, he's dead. He's dead. He's bones now, right? They're taking his bones with them up to the land of Canaan. But why? Why do they do that? Why is it so important for Joseph's bones to be buried in Canaan and not in Egypt? Because Joseph believed God. Because Jacob, Joseph's father, believed God. They believed not just that God was going to give the land of Canaan to their descendants, but that God was going to give the land of Canaan to them. In short, they believed that their death was not the end of their story. They believed that they would one day rise from the dead. They believed that God in the day of judgment would raise the righteous and the wicked and he would judge the wicked and bless the righteous and that they wanted to be in the right place when they were raised from the dead, you see. This is what they believed. They believed the truthfulness of God's promise, even though all of the evidence pointed to the contrary in their lives. They, they had never seen people raised from the dead and yet they believed they would be. Joseph believed that he would be and he wants to be in the promised land when he's raised. And so he says, take my bones there. Bury me there. It hasn't happened yet. Joseph's bones, presumably, what's left of them are still somewhere there in the promised land. Maybe dust by now. But brothers and sisters, listen to me carefully. The day is coming when Joseph will rise. Yeah. The day is coming when Joseph will rise in the promised land and he will look around and say, my family did what I asked. They buried me in the right place. God is faithful to his promise. God is fulfilling his promise to Joseph's family. He's taking the, the children of Israel up out of Egypt to the land of Canaan. And then that leads us to another question, which is what is God's reason for taking Israel to Egypt in the first place and leaving them there for 400 years? Why did it take this long for God's promise to Joseph to be fulfilled, God's promise to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob to be fulfilled? What is the purpose of this 400-year sojourn as slaves in the land of Egypt? And there's several ways we can answer that question. On the one hand, we could talk about the fact that this is God's plan to grow and prosper them as a nation, right? God said to Abraham in Genesis chapter 15 that his children, his descendants, would be strangers in a strange land. They would be slaves for 400 years, and that through that time, God would bless them and multiply them and increase them and cause them to become very wealthy. And indeed, that's what we see happening here. In fact, if you go back to Exodus chapter 12, 
Go back there for just a minute. Exodus 12. Look at Exodus 12, verses 35 and, and 36. We see just how God fulfills this promise. The people of Israel had also done as Moses had told them, for they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they let them have what they asked them. And thus they plundered the Egyptians. This is the faithfulness to God's promise. Moses, as he writes these words, is teaching the people of Israel that God is faithful. God promised Abraham that his descendants would become rich in the land of Egypt, contrary to expectation since they were slaves. And here they are, leaving Egypt with great wealth. They've plundered the Egyptians. So part of God's purpose in keeping them in Egypt for 400 years is to grow them, multiply them as a nation, make them strong and Give them great wealth. Part of his purpose in putting them in the land of Egypt is to draw some Egyptians to himself, believe it or not. Look at verse 38 of, of chapter 12 there of Exodus. Exodus 12, 38. A mixed multitude also went up with them and very much livestock in both flocks and herds. They're wealthy, not just in terms of their flocks and herds and silver and gold and clothing. They're wealthy in people. People go up with them. And while I'm sure that this isn't just Egyptians, maybe there are other peoples who were enslaved in Egypt who are going up with them, this clearly also is a reference to Egyptians. There are Egyptians who have seen everything that God has done over the course of the plagues in Egypt. They have seen the mightiness of Yahweh, the God of Israel, and how he has triumphed over the deities of Egypt. And they're sold. They're convinced. They're going up with Israel. And while some of these people who are included in this mixed multitude that Moses mentions here are, uh, are going to cause trouble in some ways later on in the story, we also know that some of them are, are converts. Um, if we had time this morning, we could, we could trace threads through Scripture of Egyptian names and, uh, and indications that there are Egyptian people who, who cohabit with Israel, who become part of the people of God. And move forward with them. You see, God's purposes are always much greater than we think. He's always doing more things than we realize he's doing. So part of his purpose in keeping Israel in Egypt there is to draw some Egyptians to himself. Part of his purpose in putting Israel in Egypt for 400 years before he takes them out is to give the Canaanites time to repent. <laughs> Do you remember what God said to Abraham in Genesis chapter 15 when he, when he reveals this to him that his descendants would be slaves in a foreign land and and, and, and in turmoil there, oppressed there, he says, because the sins of the Amorites are not yet complete. It's Genesis 15, 26, I think. Amorites there is, is just a, a, a larger people group name that includes the Canaanites. God is saying to Abraham, the Canaanites are not yet at the place where I'm ready to judge them. You see, sometimes when we read the story of Israel coming up out of Egypt and going to the land of Canaan and the warfare there, and we're going to read about some of that as we go through Exodus and then later in Numbers and, and, and in Deuteronomy, we're going to read some of the warfare that happens between Israel and the peoples of the land. Sometimes when we read about that, we, we come up with moral questions and, and you know, we say, is, is this just? Was it just for Israel to do this? Were they acting morally? Was this genocide? And we have questions like that. It's not genocide, by the way. It doesn't meet the definition but we have all kinds of questions about that. And what we don't realize is that God, as he sits sovereignly over the throne of the universe, sits in sovereign judgment over the, over the nations of the earth. And the peoples of Canaan were wicked, unjust, 
murderous people. They sacrificed their children as burnt offerings to their deities. They oppressed their slaves. They were unjust to each other. They murdered without remorse. And so God is going to do to them what he does to every nation that is unjust. He punishes. He brings judgment. He overthrows. In this case, he's going to overthrow through the coming of Israel. He's going to use Israel as his tool to judge Canaan. But, as God says to Abraham in Genesis 15, the time for their judgment hasn't yet arrived. The sins of the Amorites are not yet full, he says. Or, to put it another way, he says, I am going to show them mercy for another 400 years. I'm going to delay the judgment of Canaan for 400 years yet. I will not yet judge them. Don't miss the mercy of God in that. And so we can say that amongst the reasons for God having Israel in Egypt during this time is that he was giving Canaan time. He was giving the Amorites, the Canaanites time to realize the truth of what they were doing, to live up to the light that was in them and repent. But ultimately, the final reason that is given in these chapters for why God has Israel in Egypt as slaves and why it's only now in the time of Moses and his contemporaries that he takes them up out of Egypt, the ultimate reason for that is to display his glory to the entire world. That's the final reason, the ultimate reason for why he does what he does. Look at Exodus 14, verse 4. Exodus 14, verse 4, he says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all of his hosts, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. Which itself is just a repetition of something that God had said at the very beginning of Moses' mission. When God first called Moses, he said, I am going to work in such a way that I will get glory. You can see that in Exodus 9 and other places. This is why God does what he does to show his glory and to show his faithfulness. God leads his people gently. He leads his people faithfully. He leads his people constantly. He leads his people constantly. As the people of Israel come up out of Egypt, as you look at Exodus 13, verses 20 and 21 and 22, here's what it says. They moved on from Sukkot and encamped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, and th that they might travel by day and by night. And the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. Pillar of cloud and fire. I don't know, I don't know how you picture that. I don't, know, I don't know when the first time was that you encountered this story. If you were a kid like I was, the first time I encountered this story uh, in, in church Sunday school classes, and it was portrayed to me on flannel graphs and other things. And, and, and uh, the image that I always have in my mind of this pillar of smoke and pillar of fire is of, you know, of two different images. There's, there's a kind of a, a cylindrical uh, pillar that looks kind of smoky, and then, there's a, and then there's a cylindrical pillar that looks all red and yellow and fiery. And, and if it was nighttime, it was the fire one, and if it was daytime, it was the cloudy one. And somehow this kind of marched in front of the people which isn't a terrible image as far as it goes, but it, I think it misses the point that Moses is conveying, which is, it, which is that God made himself visibly, tangibly present to his people, in front of his people, before his people, 
And he's there day, and he's there night, and he never leaves. And it's not that there's two different pillars. It's not that God looks different in day and night. It's that he's, a, he's, a, he's fire. The presence of God is a consuming fire. And, it's a fi- and the fire is most visible at night. But during the day, maybe if you're far away, all you see is the smoke from the fire. But the point is, God's there. He's with his people. He's before his people. He's leading them as a shepherd leads his flock. And he's doing it constantly. He doesn't depart. He's there day and night. God leads his people gently and faithfully and constantly. God puts himself in front of his people. God puts himself not only in front of his people, but he puts himself in back of his people. Look at chapter 14 of Exodus. He gives his people a hard command here. Verses 1 through 4, Exodus 14. The Lord said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pihaharoth between Migdal and the sea, in front of Baal Zephon. You shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will save the people of Israel. They are wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will pursue them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. He tells them to stop advancing and position themselves with their backs to the Red Sea. Now, I'm not a military strategist, and I know that there, there sometimes there are reasons to, to position yourself as a war host with your back in such a position that the enemy can't get around you. But I think most military strategists would look at this and say they are an inferior war host, and they are deliberately cutting off any possibility of escape. And that's a bad idea. This is bad military strategy. God tells them, camp by the sea. Right? He gives them a hard command. Why? Because he had not adequately shown his power yet. God has one more way that he is going to show his power. And God does this regularly, doesn't he? God regularly does things which from a human perspective seem ridiculous. And... What is even harder, he expects his people sometimes to do things which are hard, ridiculous, so that he can share his glory, so that he can demonstrate his power. I think about, I think about the story of Gideon in the book of Judges, right? Gideon, who, who summoned up a large host to go and fight the Midianites, and God said, no, you've got too many people, right? You need a smaller war host. It doesn't make any sense. But it does in the divine plan, right? Because God's purpose is to show his power and his glory. Or I think about the story of Lazarus in the New Testament. Do you remember in, in, in John 11 when Lazarus is sick and it says Jesus received word that the one whom he loved, Lazarus, his good friend, was sick. And so he stayed where he was. And we read that and we go, that doesn't make any sense. In fact, the New International Version, I think, botches the translation here. I like the NIV most of the time. I think it usually does a pretty good job. But here, the NIV, the translators of the NIV were so confused by the statement that Jesus loved his friend, so he stayed, that they change it. They say, he loved his friend, yet he stayed. Because from a human perspective, it doesn't make any sense. But from a divine perspective, it makes perfect sense, doesn't it? Jesus had something else in mind. Jesus was going to show his power. He was going to demonstrate the glory of God in raising the dead. And similarly here, God tells Israel, camp with your back to the sea. Cut off all possibility of escape. Burn the boats and trust me. 
I'm going to do something powerful. I'm going to show my glory over Pharaoh. Sometimes we hear hard commands from God. We have to trust that God knows what He's doing, that He's acting for our good and to show His glory, and that in any case, whatever else happens, that He won't leave us. He will be with us. And so God is there and He protects Israel from their enemies as their rear guard. He moves from being in front of His people to being in back of His people. Look at what happens in the verses that follow. I'm going to read verse 5 through verse 20, which is a long section of Scripture. So if you need to slap yourself to kind of keep yourself awake while I read, or you need to stand up and move around, that's okay. But listen now, listen now to the word of the Lord. Exodus 14, verse 5. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people. And they said, what is this that we have done that we have let Israel go from serving us? So he made ready his chariot and he took his army with him and took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. And the Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army, and they overtook them, encamped at the sea by Pihaharoth in front of Baal-Zaphon. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You have only to be silent. And the Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all of his hosts and his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. Then the angel of God who was going before the host of Israel moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. God protects them from their enemies. And he protects them in such a, a shepherding way, doesn't he? He goes and he stands between them and their enemies. It says the angel of God who was going before them. That's just a, a Hebraic euphemism for God himself, the presence of God who they had previously seen in the pillar of smoke and fire who had been going before them now goes and is behind them, between them and the hosts of the Egyptians. He stands there as their rear guard. He does what a good shepherd does. And he puts himself in between his flock and its predators. God puts himself in back of his people. 
As the story goes on, we read Moses, verse 21, stretched out his hand over the sea. And the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. And the Egyptians pursued and went in after them in the midst of the sea, all of Pharaoh's horses, his chariots and his horsemen. And in the morning watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. The Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea, that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots and upon their horsemen. And so Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen of all of the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus, the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, and so the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant, Moses. God delivers his people and completely destroys the greatest empire on the face of the planet. God puts himself in back of his people. Being redeemed by God means never traveling alone anymore. Now, we read all of this. And as we read through the rest of the scriptures, we are told in multiple places that all of this serves as a lesson for us, right? Paul says that whatever was written in former times was written for our instruction. All these things are written for us, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Jesus, as he, as he walks with the disciples on the road to Emmaus, teaches them from Moses and the prophets everything concerning himself. And so, as we read this, in other words, we're supposed to see that this has lessons for us. This isn't just a fascinating part of the history of the people of God. This has implications for us who follow God in 21st century America. So what does this mean for us? How is this for us? The answer is that ultimately this is about Jesus. Right? How is this about Jesus? In that God's greatest act of deliverance does not occur uh, at the Red Sea, but at the Passover a few chapters earlier. And so as we wrap things up this morning, I want you to glance back just for a minute at Exodus chapter 12. God puts himself in front of his people and he puts himself in back of his people, but ultimately he puts himself in place of his people. Look at Exodus 12. And in fact, before you do that, look at Exodus 13, verses 11 and following. Exodus 13, verse 11 and following, it says, When the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, as he swore to you and your fathers, and gives it all to you, you shall set apart to the Lord all that first opens the womb. All the firstborn of your animals that are males shall be the Lord's. Every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb, or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. Every firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. And when in time to come your son asks you, What does this mean? You shall say to him, By a strong hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. For when Egypt, 
when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of animals. Therefore, I sacrificed to the Lord all the males that first opened the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeemed. It shall be as a mark on your hand or frontlets between your eyes, for by a strong hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt. You read that, that legal regulation there in the middle of the story of the exodus of the Israelites, and you say, why is that there? There's plenty of other places later in Exodus that are, that are law codes or in Leviticus or Numbers or Deuteronomy. This would fit much better in one of those places. Why is this here in the story of Israel leaving Egypt? And the answer is because of its importance. Right? The answer is because the, the, the whole story of the firstborn is a story about what God will ultimately do for his people. All of the firstborn belong to God. That's why he slaughters the firstborn of Egypt if they're not redeemed. And that's why here he says, here's, here's how you safeguard your firstborn. They all belong to me. Why the firstborn in particular? The firstborn in that culture, you have to understand, was a symbol of the entirety of the family. The firstborn was the heir. The firstborn was, was the one who symbolically was the, 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 the person who stood for the entire family. And so if all the firstborn belong to God, what God is saying is that everything belongs to me. Everything belongs to me. All are his by right of creation. All of, all of them are his by right of judgment. All are his. And the firstborn can only be redeemed through sacrifice. God says the animals have to be slaughtered, but the, the firstborn people have to be redeemed. And as you go forward through redemptive history and you come to the story of Jesus, you see exactly that happening, don't you? We just came out of Christmas time and, and uh, one of the one of the lesser spoken of stories of Advent is the story of Jesus being taken into the temple for the circumcision, right? And, and the appearance to, to Simeon and to Anna. But we forget why Jesus was there, right? We remember Simeon's words to Mary, a sword will pierce your heart too. We remember Anna's words. But do we remember why Jesus was there in the temple? Yes, to be, to be circumcised on the eighth day, right? But but there was a sacrifice to be made, wasn't there? Jesus' parents were bringing the sacrifice that is spoken of here. They were coming into the temple saying, this is our firstborn, and as Moses instructed, we have to redeem him by virtue of sacrifice. But as we, as, we, as Christians, with the rest of the New Testament, step back and look at that story, we go, there's something disjointed here. Jesus doesn't need a sacrifice. Jesus is the sacrifice. And of course, on the one hand, what Jesus' parents are doing is, is because, you know, they don't understand completely that this Jesus is, is the God-man who has come to take away the sins of all the world through his own sacrifice. These are things that are going to be revealed to them later on. And so they're simply acting in, in, in conjunction with the law of Moses. They're acting faithfully. But in another sense, what happens there at that temple is a foreshadowing of what Jesus would do. Jesus himself is, is the firstborn who was not redeemed, Jesus is the firstborn who became the redemption. See, The Passover then becomes a symbol of that. The Passover points forward to that. That is the ultimate redemption that God accomplishes. God puts himself in place of his people. Jesus puts himself in our place. We were redeemed. We are the firstborn who is redeemed not by two doves or a young goat, but we are the firstborn who are redeemed by the sacrifice of Jesus himself. 
And being redeemed means that we're never alone anymore. As we continue then on our spiritual journeys, we have to realize that we, like the Israelites, will face hard situations that we don't understand. But we understand this one thing, that God is always with us and doing what is best for us. Even in the hardest parts of life, we will not face them alone. Because the most difficult part has been walked for us. Jesus in our place. Being redeemed by God means never traveling alone anymore.